Well, good morning. And that's true, isn't it? That the Lord's grace still amazes us. Each and every day as believers in Christ, we're amazed by the amazing grace of God. Thank you to our praise team for leading us in worship this morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Haggai. Now, let me just say on the front end today that I may say Haggai, I may say Haggai, I might say any number of things. I used to call it Haggai when I was a kid, went to Bible college. My professors called this prophet Haggai, so I don't know what to call him, but we'll probably call him both as we move throughout our study today. But I invite you to turn to this book, this prophecy that was written by this prophet, And uh, if you don't know where Haggai is, let me help you. Go to the end of the Old Testament, back up three books, and you'll find Haggai. Uh, We just have two more messages in our series on the minor prophets after this one. And then I think uh, I had mentioned that I'm going to be preaching out of the Gospel of John moving forward, and I plan to do that. However, I think this summer um, we're going to do a number of the Psalms, And then probably more towards the fall, we will jump into the Gospel of John. So hopefully you're there in the book of Haggai, Haggai, or whatever you want to call him. Hey, I I have a theory, but um, I don't think it's gaining much steam. I've shared my theory with my daughters and several of the new moms in our church, but they just kind of laugh at me. They smile, shake their head. My idea, my theory... It's nothing transformational, but it makes all the sense in the world to me, and I think it would save young parents a lot of time and anxiety. Because it seems to be in vogue today for new parents to find a unique name for their baby that virtually none of the other little babies have, I'm proposing a recycling of the old names. So think about it. Who these days is naming their child Dave? or Mark, or Mike, or Bruce, or Henry, or Kathy, or Stephanie, or Christina, or Donna, or Karen. We could go on and on and on. And so my theory is this. If you want to give your new little boy or girl a unique name, go with the older names. How many little Brucies are running around in elementary schools across the country today? Probably not too many. Well, I mentioned my theory Because as we think about unique names today, the name Haggai certainly fits the bill. So I could ask you to raise your hand if you've ever met anyone by the name of Haggai, and my guess is that no hands are going up. So if you want to name your child a unique name, there it is. Uh, Haggai, we know very little about this man in Scripture, He's the only person in Scripture by that name. His name means festal one, which makes us think that he was most likely born on one of the Jewish feasts or festivals. But that's really just speculation on our part because Haggai is one of the minor prophets whose personal history we know very little about. We don't know his background. We don't know his family heritage. What little we do know, we learn from the book of Ezra because he is mentioned there twice in chapter 5 and verse 1, and chapter 6 and verse 14, and we're going to take a look at those two mentions a little later in the message. But what makes Haggai unique, further unique, 
is that he is the first of the post-captivity or post-exilic prophets. And that's important. This means that he served as a prophet after the return of Israel back to their homeland following their lengthy exile in Babylon. And if you recall, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the people of Israel were taken from their homeland and they were exiled to Babylon. And so most likely, Haggai was born in exile. But now he is back where he belongs in the land of his forefathers, and God has chosen him to be his prophet for a very narrow period of time. And and when I say a narrow period of time, it's defined for us here in the book of Haggai. His prophecy spans just under four months. So here's where we're at in the history of the nation of Israel. The remnant had returned to Israel The feasts were reinstituted. The foundation of the new temple had been laid, but there was a growing sentiment, a growing apathy about continuing the project. And so nothing was happening. The project to rebuild the temple had stalled out. And so as a prophet, Haggai's responsibility before the Lord was to tell the people of Israel that God wants them to rebuild the temple. Of course, the people of Israel were full of excuses, But at the root of their inaction was a continuing coldness, it appears, toward God himself. And we've seen this throughout the history of the nation of Israel. Apathy of epic proportions. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the apathetic attitude of the people of God, the chosen people of God God chose the nation of Israel out of all the other peoples to be his people. He calls them my people, Israel, all throughout the Old Testament. And yet we see this this coldness, this apathy. And so we ask the question this morning, do you ever get apathetic? Apathy is defined as a lack of interest, a lack of enthusiasm or concern. And let me just say this as we begin today. We need to fight hard against apathetic attitudes in the Christian life. Because at the root of our Christian experience should be uh, an excitement, a, a joy. God is in control. He has saved us from our sin. He has given us an abundant life to live for him. And let me just say, sometimes we forget. God is at work in our lives. Yes, there are difficult circumstances in life. We're all going through things. We're all going through stuff. The complicating factors of life sometimes have a way of making us apathetic towards the things of God. We must fight against it. We must fight against apathetic attitudes in the Christian life. Because as I said, God is at work in our lives. And we need to see life for what it is. It is an opportunity for us amid the circumstances to bring glory to God. If we lose track of our mission, we will easily or could easily fall into apathy. But every day is an opportunity for us to bring glory to God. And let me just say this, apathy is a tool of Satan. Uh, to keep us from our mission. Kathy and I 
are soon to uh, celebrate our 35-year wedding anniversary, and it's kind of snuck up on us, to be honest with you. I was uh, looking at the calendar. We were married on June the 6th of 1986, 87. <laughs> we, met, we met in June of 1986. We were married in June of 1987. And so this is our 35th wedding anniversary. And it wasn't but about a month ago that I came to the realization, that, that's a big deal. 34, not that big of a deal. 36, eh, 35? Now you start to measure on the fives, right? The next big one is 40. And so Kathy and I were talking, and, you know, we want to do something special, and so we're going to go to Ocean City, Maryland for a couple of days to celebrate our anniversary. But we were reflecting a little bit on our life together. It's been 35 years since we entered into the covenant of marriage that we both said that we would commit ourselves to the Lord and to each other for the rest of our lives. And the Lord has taken us on an interesting journey uh, through those 35 years. We have served in five different churches in two different states. We've ministered to thousands of people. God has sustained us through our ministry. He has empowered us in our ministry. He has blessed us in our ministry. But you know, when you're in the ministry, there are ups and there are downs. There are ups and there are downs. And even pastors can get apathetic. And we have fought against apathy our whole life and ministry because we have a mission And our mission is to serve Christ no matter what. So whether it's good or whether it's bad, in our minds, God is at work. And so we are to be honoring to him. And so apathy, no good. It's a tool of Satan. And sometimes I think, even in a weird sort of way, a desire of the flesh. Because apathy kind of then relieves us of responsibility, right? We just don't care anymore. So we go through the routines of life. Eh, we'll do it if we want. We won't do it if we don't want. What's the big deal? You been there? I think, (laughs) unless I'm awfully unique, I think it's a routine thing that we have to fight against in the Christian life. Because we do the same thing a lot, right? I do the same thing every week. Now, there might be different people that we're engaged with throughout the week, but essentially, I pretty much do the same thing throughout the week. And I never want my study, I never want my, my time in God's Word, my interaction with our pastoral staff or any of these other things that we do on a routine basis to just be, ah, we have a mission, and our mission is to please the Lord with our lives. So Haggai's purpose and mission is very narrow here. It's very pointed. He tells them it's time to rebuild the temple. Some interesting side notes as we begin to look at this today. First, Haggai's prophecy preceded Zechariah's prophecy by just two months. And so Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries of one another. And we're going to look at the book of Zechariah next week. He takes kind of a different take or a twist on pretty much the same thing. 
But another interesting thing that we find here in this 38-verse prophecy is that Haggai puts a date on all of his pronouncements. And I'll point this out as we move along in our study today, but this is how we know that his prophecy only spans four months. So as we begin to dive into our little book today, written by Haggai, we're going to find four major pronouncements to the people of Israel on behalf of God. And the first pronouncement we find here in verses 1 through 15, and it is that the people of Israel are given a command to expedite the rebuilding of the temple. And as I said, this first pronouncement is at the heart of Haggai's ministry as a prophet. So look with me at verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earn wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And by the way, when he says this over and over and over and over again, he says he's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of hosts. Some of your translations may say he's the Lord of the armies. What he's referring to is the angelic hosts, the innumerable angels at his disposal. And so he is the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all of the labor of of your hands. He's showing his power and his disgust with their apathy. They have not done what they were supposed to do in rebuilding the temple, and so God has withheld his blessing in intangible ways, he says here. Then verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. 
And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. We'll notice here that Haggai begins by giving us the date, right? He says, it's the first day of the sixth month of the second year of King Darius' reign that the Lord came to him and gave him this particular command to deliver to the governor of Judah, whose name was Zerubbabel. And the message was this, engage the people and get busy rebuilding the temple. Now, Darius was not the king of Israel, but the king of the powerful Persian army And he assumed the throne in 521 B.C. The Persian Empire had superseded the great Babylonian Empire at this time. And so they were the great power in the time of Haggai, the Persians. I I, I guess the, the first question that we might have as Bible students would be to ask, what is the big deal with the temple? What's the big deal? Well, The big deal is that the temple was considered the seat of worship for the Jews. In essence, the the temple took the place of the portable tabernacle that was constructed during the wilderness wanderings in Egypt, and the temple was said to be the very house of the Lord, where the presence of God dwelt. And so that's the big deal. It's where daily prayers and worship took place. It's where offerings were given. In the second temple period that we're moving into now, it would also be the location where the Sanhedrin would meet. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews, almost like the Supreme Court of Israel. And they would meet every day except on the Sabbath and on festival days in the temple. And so the temple was intended to serve as the the spiritual hub of the lives of the people of Israel. But at this point, particular point in history, there's nothing on the Temple Mount area but a foundation. Nothing had been built upon the foundation. And so let me give you a rough timeline as it relates to the history of the temple. You remember that it was Solomon who originally built the temple back in 957 B.C., And this was prior to the establishment of the two kingdoms in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, as I said earlier, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., which was around the time period that the Jews were exiled to Babylon. According to Jeremiah 29.10, the exile lasted 70 years. Now, there's a dispute as to the exact dates of when the exile began, when it ended, or if it was sort of a progressive exile over a longer period of time, but The Jews are now back in Israel, and the date of Haggai's prophecy is 520 B.C., so if you do the math, it's been some 66 years since the destruction of the temple. Now, you've got to remember that for much of that time, the Jews were exiled in Babylon, and so they couldn't rebuild the temple, but now they're back in their homeland. There's no activity. There's no temple. The project is stalled. Apathy has taken over the people. Now, according to the book of Ezra, 
The construction of the second temple was originally called for by Cyrus the Great of Persia in 538 B.C., and so as best as we can piece all of this together, it's been 18 long years, and all there is is a foundation with nothing built upon it. And so why is that? Why have they drug their feet? If the temple is such an important part of Jewish religious life, why is there no temple? Well, it's here that we find the real heart of the people in Jerusalem. Their apathy is hard to miss. They, they try to substantiate their lack of work on the temple by rationalizing that the timing just isn't right. They were getting pushback from neighboring countries, but in reality, they just didn't care. But as we see here, God is not hearing it because ultimately their real problem was a coldness toward God himself. And, and we have poured over the minor prophets over the last number of months. And I think maybe naturally so, we like to kind of point fingers at the nation of Israel for their obstinance and their lack of fervor toward God. But I think if we're honest, we can be the same way. I can only imagine how much we disappoint God when we make excuses or we try to rationalize why we don't do what we know we should be doing. You ever try to make excuses with God? I was praying the other day by myself. And I found myself making excuses with God. I was, also, I was actually trying to rationalize with God so that he would kind of bend my way on something that I didn't do, or I don't even remember the circumstance, but I just remember thinking, what are you doing? The Lord already knows all this. You're not telling him anything he doesn't know. And for you to try to make an excuse somehow why you didn't do something or why you did do something, how ridiculous. I stopped right in the middle of my prayer and I said, Lord, I'm sorry for making excuses. I know I need to do better in this. Whatever it was, and again, I can't recall what it was, but I just remember how stupid and, I mean, making excuses to God? You know, the people of Israel, I think, were kind of in that spot. They were rationalizing why they were just sitting on their hands, doing nothing, essentially. Man, you think about what God had done for the nation of Israel. They were in exile for 70 years in Babylon. Can you imagine what that would be like? To be ripped from your homeland and taken to a foreign land for 70 years. They've been restored back to their homeland. And rather than exuding the joy of the Lord and being excited about what God has done, they turn to excuses, apathy, complacency. And by the way, complacency, it's not contentment. If a person is complacent, they're just stuck in the mud, right? They just, eh, whatever. You ever have that attitude? Ah, you know, whatever. Contentment is different. We are called to be content as God's people. Paul talked a lot about contentment in Philippians. He talked a lot about how joy and contentment sort of are like two hands that go together. 
So we're to be content in the Christian life, which means that we're to be satisfied in what God is doing in our lives at the time. It doesn't mean that we can't be forward thinking and that we could be working towards something that's important. Some, someone may be in a job that they just think as going nowhere and they'd like to get another job and they may be working towards getting another job. And so they could become complacent in their job where they're just like, oh, well, whatever. Or they could continue to want to desire to get another job that would be better for their family. But they can still be content in that, satisfied with where God has them now, but still reaching forward. So there's a great difference between complacency and contentment. The people of Israel were complacent. They weren't content with what they had been brought through and now back in their homeland. They just became apathetic, complacent. And I was thinking a lot about this this week. I I really think we can go through the motions in the Christian life we can still do the things that we know we should do. We can pray. We can read our Bibles. We can come to church. We can engage with other people. But sort of underlying with that at times is just an apathy or a complacent sort of an attitude. Sometimes we feel like we've lost our joy. Like, you know, I, I remember the times where I was so excited about the things of God. I remember just praising the Lord every day with my lips and with my life, and that was my goal. And, and yet now I feel like I've just fallen into this trap of doing the same old thing over and over and over again. Have you been there? So how do we fight against it? How do we fight against that kind of a rut I've never met anyone that hasn't been in a rut at some point in their Christian life. When I hear your testimonies, uh, oftentimes you'll share about the ruts and how God brought you out of the rut. If you're in a rut today, if you're sort of feeling that kind of way where you've lost your joy, you go through the motions, you know you should be at church, Ah, sometimes we make excuses. Ah, I got something else to do. Something else is on the calendar and whatever. But for the most part, we engage with the church. What we don't want to do and what we don't want to be are excuse makers. When I was coaching high school basketball, the kids that would make excuses for why they couldn't do what I asked them to do they got to sit down on the other side of the bench. I don't want excuse makers. I want guys that are going to try to do what we need to do to win the game. And I think it's the same way in the Christian life. God doesn't want excuse makers. He doesn't want to hear why you can't do something. He doesn't want to hear why you are in a rut or complacent or apathetic. Get out of the rut, he says. My word is sufficient Dive into the Scriptures. Go to the Psalms. Read the Psalms. Ask Him to help to pull you out of the apathy and the rut and the excuse-making. We know that it's God's design for the local church to be the hub of our lives as Christians, right? But we can be pretty good 
at making excuses as to why we can't consistently engage with the church. Well, you know, hey, we got a life to live. We got a lot going on. So what are our priorities? You know, I've been beating this drum my whole ministry, and I will continue to beat it. The church should be the hub of the life of the Christian. Some people only engage with the church when they don't have anything else to do. You know, there's a reason why the writer of Hebrews wrote Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, which says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And that's not just on Sundays. If you view the church as an activity, you've missed it. You understand what I mean by that? If you view the church as a place you go, you've missed it. That's not God's design for his church. We don't go to church. We are the church. 24-7, 365 days a year. Our engagement with the church isn't just supposed to happen on Sundays. The one another's of the New Testament are not just supposed to happen on Sundays. But when we do engage with the church, we should be eager to learn and to grow and to serve and to be challenged. Hey, if you're in an apathetic attitude right now, have someone help you with that. We've all been there. I mean, over the years when I think about being in a rut, I have people that are reaching down to help me out of the rut. We've got an army of people in our church to help you to reach you out of the rut, out of the apathy, out of the complacency. But they were big excuse makers, the people of Israel. Their coldness for the Lord had not gone unnoticed by him, even to the point that the Lord has withheld his blessing on them because of their apathy. And we read that in verses 9 through 11. But an amazing thing happened. An amazing thing happened, and we read about it in verses 12 through 15. The people were stirred in their hearts, which is what should happen in our hearts, right? They desired to turn from their apathetic ways and to pursue hard after God. And this is exciting. This is a turn for the better. Something is starting to happen in the hearts of these people. They realized the errors of their ways and they began to take the steps necessary to rebuild the temple. And I can't even imagine how much that pleases the Lord. His people desired to do what he said. Which brings us to the second pronouncement that we find here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and it's the people of Israel are given encouragement by the Lord for their efforts. I, I love this here. It's very explicit. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? So they're asking, is there anyone here? They were in exile for 70 years. Is there anyone here that remembers what the temple looked like? And how do you see it now, he says? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? 
But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. A reminder. Take on the project. Do what needs to be done. Rebuild the temple. I am your God. I am with you. Every step of the way, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will become and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Isn't that cool? Says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord praises them for their work. And I don't know about you, but my hope is one day, with all of my deficiencies, to one day stand before the Lord and hear a word of praise. It's not my motivation. My motivation has always been a love for the Lord, but I'm not going to minimize my hope, which is that one day I will hear the words of my Savior saying, good job. You certainly (laughs) weren't perfect, Dave. And I agree with you, they should rename all the babies the old names, he says. (laughs) But you've served me well. That is my hope and my desire. The Lord is pleased with the people of Israel and He promises to bless them in tangible ways. Don't you love the reminder here? of who God is in, in verse 8 here of chapter 2. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, God gives them the perspective that he needs, that they need. He says, it's all his, all his. The earth is mine and all that is in it is mine. Gold comes out of my earth and so does silver. So do trees that make paper, that make dollar bills. And so does every other metal, whether it's nickel or whether it's aluminum or whether it's the coins that are, that are constructed out of some sort of metal. It's all the Lord's. It all comes out of His earth and His creation. He owns it all. But not only does He own it all, He's the sole cause and provider for those who have wealth or possessions. I think we often forget this. Sometimes I think we think that we have what we have because of our own abilities or our own intellect or our own hard work. But Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18 says it's because of God's power that you have what you have. It says there, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. And so it's God and his sovereignty has allowed some to be wealthy in this life, but to whom much is given much is required. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul also talks about wealth and money, and he says, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. And that is about as practical as you can get. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
And so God wants you to enjoy the things that he's entrusted to you, but the reminder is he owns it all. You see, the real problem that we have is not only thinking that everything that we have is ours, it's that we have a wrong affection for our stuff. We love our stuff. We love our possessions. We love our money. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. Why? Because 1 Timothy 6.10 says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And again, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, the apostle Paul asked the question, and what do you have that you did not receive? And of course, the answer to that is nothing. It's all the Lord's. He owns the cattle in a thousand hills, the wealth in every mind. He distributes it to whomever he wishes, however he wishes, And that distribution is within the framework of his creative purpose and his providence. We are to be faithful stewards of whatever the Lord has given to us. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He has given us what he has given us. We're to be content in it. We're to honor the Lord in it. And we're to be good stewards of all that he has given to us. The third pronouncement we find here in verses 10 through 19, and it's that the people of Israel are given the blessing of the Lord. They're given the blessing of the Lord. Look at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, here he goes dating things again. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, and now the priests for a ruling, if a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. And then Haggai said, if, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so so is this people and so is the nation before me declares the lord and so is every work of their hands and what they offer therefore is unclean but now do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the lord from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures there would be only 10 and when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures there would be only 20 I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, and yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, and yet from this day on. I will bless you. You see, God's in control. He's in control of how he's going to bless them. They have, they have been disobedient. They've been apathetic. They've been excuse makers. But now they are on board. They desire to honor God with their lives. And that is seen in the fruit of their desire collectively to rebuild the temple. So he gives these different scenarios here, and he kind of goes back to, to food and, and all these other things. It's not a distraction. It's something that they understood what he was sharing. 
But it's very interesting here that God says he will bless them from this point forward because of their obedience. And I tell folks all the time, just do the right thing before the Lord and he will bless your obedience. It may not be in material ways, but the Lord expects us to obey him and, to, and, he, and he will bless our obedience in the same way. This leads us then to the fourth pronouncement we find here in the last four verses, verses 20 through 23, and it's that the people of Israel are given a promise for their future. The people of Israel are given a promise for their future. Look at verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So he begins this pronouncement in the same way he begins the others, by dating the time frame here. And then Haggai records the Lord praising the life of Zerubbabel, who serves as God's signet ring. So a signet ring was a special ring that those in high places of honor would possess. When kings would send out a decree to the people, it would be on a scroll, and the scroll would be rolled up. The fold of the scroll would be, uh, a, a drop of wax would be put on the fold of the scroll. And for the people to know that this had come from the king, he would take his signet ring with his special uh, signature, so to speak, his symbol on his ring, and he would imprint it into the wax. Only the king had the signet ring that was special in their country. And so they, he, he's comparing here Zerubbabel as God's signet ring that the messianic line that was disrupted by the exile would continue and so Zerubbabel reestablishes the Davidic line of kings that will culminate with the kingly reign of Jesus during the thousand-year millennium. Now, I mentioned that we'll go back to Ezra, and so let's do that. Go back to Ezra, uh, and let's look at these two mentions as we finish up today. Go back with me to Ezra. So Ezra chapter 5, if you can get there, Ezra chapter 5, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and so on, uh, Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So look at verse 1, when the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Idu pro prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And then go over to chapter 6, and verse 1, 
Then King Darius issued a decree, and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. So when, when, the, when the temple was destroyed, they took out everything, and they took it back to Babylon. And it says, King Darius issued a decree, and the search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon, in Ecbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there was written in it as follows, Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundation be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width being 60 cubits, with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple of Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. And then drop down to verse 13. Then when Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent, and the elders of the Jews were successful in building uh, through the prophecy of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Idu, and they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes of Persia, this temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So you remember this prophecy was during the second year of King Darius. So it took four years for the temple to be rebuilt. All of the things that were in the temple that were precious to the people of Israel and to God were brought back and restored. And so if you're keeping track, the temple was actually completed in 515 B.C., which was 21 years after the start of the construction. But it all got started because of the obedience of the people of Israel to Haggai's prophecy. And so Haggai is a, a man with a unique name, a man with a unique ministry that God used in the history of his people. Obscure, albeit obscure, for four months God used this man. And you know, you got to love a guy like Haggai. God, use me in any way you choose. Use me in any way you choose for the length of period that you want to use me. This should be our hard attitude to be desired to be used by God in whatever it would be that the Lord would have for us. So just so you know, the second temple stood for approximately 585 years, but was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman Empire, but will one day be rebuilt because Jesus will rule and reign from this temple for a thousand years. Daniel 9 speaks all about this. I posted a picture on Facebook as I wanted to tell what we were going to be looking at today. I stood in the very spot where the temple used to stand. You know what's there now? A Muslim mosque. 
They call it the Dome of the Rock that is placed where the temple used to be. That Dome of the Rock will one day be destroyed and the temple will be rebuilt and it will be the third and final temple that will stand right there where the Dome of the Rock sits today. God is in control, and we trust him. Folks, let me just say, beware of apathy. Don't let Satan or this world rob you of your joy. God has blessed us abundantly as his people. He's given us every spiritual blessing. He's given us an abundant life to live for him. And we want to do that imperfectly as we may be. We want to continue to strive to serve our God. And this is the lesson that we learn from the book of Haggai. Haggai was faithful. He delivered the message. God worked in the lives of the people. The people responded. The temple was rebuilt. Next week, as we look at Zechariah, we're going to see a completely different twist to all of this. And so I hope you can be back with us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you again for your love to us. Thank you that you have given us your word. And even stories like this, where we learn about what you did through an obscure prophet that we know nothing about, that he just delivered your message boldly to these people, to the governor and to the high priest and to all the different ones that needed to hear that you said to do something. And you said to build the temple, and that's what they did And so we're thankful for the example here in this case that they responded to your word. Lord, in this life, may we respond to your word. May we respond each and every day to the truths that you've given to us in Scripture because we know that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to know how to live our lives for you, you've given us in your word. And we're so grateful for that. Lord, help us in our weakness. Help us to serve you and to honor you and to bring glory to you in this life. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.